Thank you very much for that ministry and music. That's my favorite hymn, so that means a lot to me. Ministered to me already tonight. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for coming back tonight and uh, you're being out with us this evening as we continue looking at the book of Psalms. I chose Psalm 86 tonight because of my Sunday school class in the morning and I was looking at God the Father's love and compassion towards us and mentioned that oftentimes I think we feel differently about our relationship to God the Father than we do God the Son, that we think of God the Son in some way more compassionate, loving, and caring than uh, God the Father, and he has to be persuaded to love us and care for us, and that certainly is not the case as we saw in Christ's intercessory prayer in my Sunday school class. So tonight, we look at a prayer of David, Psalm 86, verse 15, but you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we come to. That is the God that we pray to. And so we say with David that God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He does not reject us, but he abides we abide under his love. The first thing we want to note in this psalm is that the Lord seeks, excuse me, the psalmist seeks the Lord's help through prayer. The psalmist beseeches the Lord to be attentive to his prayer. He says in verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Now it's important when we consider this request of David, what is he asking of God when he says, Answer me, answer me. Um, there is an old saying that at least I've heard and maybe you've heard as well and that is that God answers all prayers. He answers yes, no, maybe, and wait. How many people have heard that? Just about everybody. Okay? I'm going to ask you to forget it. Okay? Just wipe that out of your mind. Pretend it didn't exist, that you never heard it because it's wrong. It's wrong. The scripture when it's talking about God's answering prayer is always in the affirmative. It's always God granting the request. It's always God moving. The scripture talks about God answering prayer, also talks about God not hearing prayer. And that's really important to understand, that he doesn't hear the prayers of the non-believer. But he is listening, this is a a beautiful picture of inclining your ear, of God kind of leaning forward with anticipation that he doesn't want to miss a word of what you are saying. Uh, I get this because my hearing is starting to fade, and I find myself doing that, especially when talking with children. (laughs) I'm leaning over and trying to get a little closer to hear what they are saying in their nice, sweet little voice. Well, God certainly can hear just fine. He doesn't have to incline his ear in order to better hear. But it's the idea of of God paying very special attention. The psalmist wants God to answer his prayer, grant his request. 
The psalmist seeks the Lord's help because he is insufficient to meet his own needs. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. And now he describes his plight or situation. For he says, I am poor and needy. I am poor and needy. First, the word poor here needs to be depressed. It is to be affected in both mind and body due to one's circumstances. That's what this Hebrew word means. It's translated as poor. Uh, We sometimes in English talk about that poor person. That person who is struggling, that, that person who is going through an ordeal. The psalmist David describes himself as being depressed. That is affected in mind and body. And severe depression will do that very thing. It'll cause a person to be tired. It'll cause a person to feel weak. It will cause a person to just want to lay in bed all day with no energy and just down. So the psalmist describes himself as poor. And then, secondly, he describes himself as needy. Needy. And the word needy here means to be without resources, without resources. That apart from God, the psalmist has no place to turn. The psalmist has no other solution to his problems. Now, what's important to keep in mind as we go through this prayer, that the psalmist is David, the psalmist is the king in Israel. That means David is wealthy. And we have been studying David's life in 2 Samuel, and you know that he's accumulated a great deal of wealth as a result of his many victories over other nations. He's gotten gold, he's gotten silver, he's gotten bronze, he's gotten all kinds of wealth, built himself a beautiful home. David has servants. He has people at his beck and call. People to do whatever he bids or wants them to do. David has power. He's king in Israel. He can make laws. He can make declarations. He can change situations and things. And yet he describes himself as needy. As needy. Which teaches us that those things in and of themselves, wealth and power, and even being surrounded by a group of people that want to help us and want to come to our assistance, cannot meet our spiritual needs. Only God is capable of doing that. And David realizes that there is no other place for him to turn. And that's why he's praying. He's needy. He's needy. He needs God's help. And we will see he needs God's help alone. Number two, the psalmist seeks the Lord's help based on his personal relationship to the Lord. First, the psalmist has been set apart by God. Preserve me Excuse me, preserve my life for this reason, for I'm godly. I'm I'm godly. The idea here is not sinless or perfect, 
Rather, the psalmist is set apart or consecrated unto the Lord. Uh, it's, David is not presenting himself as, quote, worthy of being heard and God granting his request because he has merited it, he deserves it, uh, God owes it to him. We're going to see that later on uh, in the, the psalmist. He makes it very clear that that's not the basis of his hope or trust. But it's simply the fact that he has been set apart. Uh, the word godly here is the typical Hebrew word for holy. And as I mentioned in Sunday school class this morning, holiness is used in two different ways. It's used objectively for that which is set apart for the Lord's service, like the holy vessels. Uh, the holy vessels of the tabernacle didn't say anything about their moral condition. Uh, they were inanimate objects. But they were holy because they were set apart for God's service. They were holy because they were dedicated to that particular use, uh, that they were going to be used in the table of showbread or in the offering of sacrifices or uh, whatever the case may be, but they were holy vessels because they were set apart. That's the way in which David is using the term here. He's been set apart for God. <coughs> Secondly, the psalmist has been set aside to do the Lord's work, for I'm godly. Save your servant, your servant. The one who has this relationship to God of being a servant. And again, this is David the king who understands what it is to be a servant. That is, he has loads of servants. <clears throat> and David, as far as his earthly life is concerned, is far from being a servant. He is a king surrounded by servants. But when it comes to God, he's not God's equal by any means. And even in his service for God, <coughs> he views himself as he would one of his own servants, that he is there for God's beck and call. And then thirdly, the psalmist asked God to make him cheerful and joyous once again, gladden the soul of your servant. This morning we looked at Christ's high priestly prayer in my Sunday school class, and we talked about the prayer of Jesus that we might experience the joy that Jesus has. The very joy that Jesus possessed would be our joy. Uh, that's what the psalmist is requesting in this particular psalm, that he'd be restored to a place of joy. Number four, the psalmist is very much aware that uh, excuse me, uh, uh, back to number two. The psalmist has a covenantal relationship to God. Preserve my life for I'm godly, Savior servant who trusts in you. You are my God. You are my God. That is a theme that's found throughout the Old Testament that depicts this covenantal relationship that God has to his people. When God brought the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he said, I will be to you a God, and you shall be to me a people. And David is saying, that is my relationship to you. You are my God. I am your people. 
And the thought of that covenantal relationship is that if you belong to God, he takes care of you. That's his duty. That's an obligation that he has placed upon himself. That he's going to watch over us. He's going to protect us. He's going to provide for us. He's going to be a God to us. He's going to be everything that we need so that we are without lack. Number three, the psalmist is seeking the Lord's deliverance. The psalmist asks God to guard his life, preserve my life. And that is in the fullest sense of that word. That is to guard him, to protect him. David had many, many enemies. David was constantly in a situation where people were seeking to kill him. David wasn't paranoid. And David didn't have a death complex. He really was endangered. Not only in the whole situation with Saul, but after he becomes king. And we're going to get to the passages later on where his sons rise up and rebellion against him, Absalom. And there are people in his own family that are seeking to take his life, let alone the nations and the peoples round about him. David was constantly under threat. He had an army. He had guards. But treasonous sons rising up and rebelling against him. So he asked God to to save his life, to watch over him, to protect him, to keep him, so that he could be able to continue on, to live. The psalmist is seeking deliverance in the largest and broadest sense. Save your servant. Save your servant. And the word save simply means to deliver. And so often when we, word, we, we, we read the word save in the scriptures, I think we immediately jump to a soteriological sense as we talk about the fact we're saved, we're going to heaven. But here it's, it's much, much broader than that. He's not just talking about let me live with you in eternity, but he's asking God to deliver him, to get him out of this situation, get him out of this circumstance. Change his situation. Save your servant. The psalmist asked God to make him cheerful and joyous once again. Gladden the soul of your servant, as I just referred to. Number four. The psalmist is very much aware that he's in need of God's unmerited favor. Here is the way in which we know that we have a proper understanding of that first verse when it's talking about David as being godly. For here, he repeatedly is referring to God's unmerited favor. Verse 3, be gracious to me. Verse 6, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Psalm 86, verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Be gracious, be gracious, be gracious. David knows that he is undeserving. We we do not know the situation that David is in in Psalm 86. There is no historical material for us in its title to be able to identify a particular situation. Next week, Lord willing, uh, in uh, the morning service, we're going to be in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 with uh, David's sin with Bathsheba and uh, his murdering of uh, Uriah, 
her husband. And there are two psalms that are written out of that experience. They are Psalm 32 and they are Psalm 51. And it tells us in those psalms itself that it's written in those experiences. So we are going to be looking next Sunday night at Psalm 32. The following Sunday night, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 uh, to look at what was going on in David's heart and mind in that period of time. Uh, Psalm 32 talks about what it was like in the time from committing those sins to the time that he was repentant. Uh, David spent almost a year in unrepentant sin and did not get right with God. Psalm 32 depicts that particular time in his life. And then Psalm 51 is a psalm that rejoices in the Lord's forgiveness. So we'll be looking at those. But irregardless, whatever the situation, we are always coming to a God on the basis of grace. We never measure up. There are times in which we know that we fall very short. There are times in which it's very apparent to us that we do not merit God's help, that we haven't earned a hearing with God, that we have no reason to expect him to answer our prayers because of how we have lived. But I think there are times in which we think that we are deserving. We may betray our own selves by asking the question, why did this happen to me? As though I don't deserve what I'm going through, that, that I deserve better than this, that I've been faithful, I've been reading my Bible, I've been praying, I've been serving, I've been giving, I've been doing the right things. The reality is we are always undeserving. We can never bring God into our debt. We, we can never get to a place where God owes it to us to hear and answer our prayer. But that should be freeing to us, really. It's not just so that we can wallow in our sinfulness, but that we can dance for joy in God's grace. To know that because we belong to him, he's going to hear us. Regardless of the state that we are in. Because God is going to be merciful to us. Because we're accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore our sin, he bore our shame, he bore our consequences. And so we have this assurance of the grace of God. And we always stand in need of that grace. Number five, the psalmist emphasizes that his appeal to God is to God and God alone. Verse four, gladden the heart of your servant, for you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. The reasons that the psalmist trusts in God is then delineated. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. You are good and forgiving. There is so much theological truth 
that is bound up in that simple phrase that you are good and you are forgiving. Because we marvel and wonder how that can be true. How can God at one and the same time both be good and forgiving? Good here has the sense of being just, upright, good, morally good. God is good. Not just that he does what is beneficial, but he does the right thing. He does the right thing. And he's forgiving. And that's the right thing for God to do, to forgive us our sins and to hear and answer our prayers. And the confidence we have is that He's that God. He's both good and he is forgiving. Romans chapter 3 puts it this way, that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. That God sent his son to die on the cross in order to be just, that, that he would deal with sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the table. He just doesn't pretend that our sins don't exist. He, he, he doesn't just turn his back away from them and try to get them out of his mind. No, no, God is good. God punishes sin. God demands justice and holiness and righteousness. And he took care of the whole justice issue with sending his son to die on the cross in our stead. That's what Romans 3 says, that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And so God is good, God is just, God is holy, God has demanded the penalty of sin, and because that penalty has been met, because that justice has been satisfied, because of all moral wrongdoing has been dealt with, he can be forgiving. He can accept us. He can hear us. He can answer our prayers. For he's good and he is forgiving. Then in verse 5, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him. Again, we have the New Testament reference. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To call upon him is to believe in him, to trust in him. To submit to him. It's to have a saving relationship to him. And if you have a saving relationship to him, you will answer. He will answer. For he is abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. There are not first and second class Christians. There are not, there's not this tiered relationship that we enjoy 
with God, that you move up the ladder, <laughs> that, that depending on your life and, and the life that you've lived, that you have this closer, intimate, more, lack of better brownie points that accept, that make you acceptable with God. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, you're a friend of God. And more than a friend of God, you're a child of God. You belong to him. You have received the adoption of sons. And that's not a, a slight to women. And I keep that phrase, adoption of sons, because sonship in that period of time carried great weight with it. It meant that there were positions. It meant that there were legal standards that you had as a son that women didn't have. So when the Bible talks about women becoming sons of God, it's actually a declaration that in the time period in the New Testament was astounding. It was saying that, as, as Galatians says, in Christ there's no bond or free. There's no male or female. There are simply the children of God. There isn't a hierarchy. among God's people. We are one. And he calls upon, and he answers all who call upon him. You don't need to be the king of Israel. Verse 7, In the day of trouble I will call upon you, for you answer me. Verse 8, There is none like you among the gods. There is no other god like the living and true God, for all other gods are false gods. But the idea here is that there is not even a God that's imaginable like the true and living God. And the problem oftentimes we encounter in life is unfortunately we make God according to our own imagination, according to what we think God would do or according to what we would do if we were God and we get some really strange views of who God is. The only way to really know who God is is what he tells us of himself, what he reveals to us in his word. There is no God like him. No society, no culture, no religious organization, no religion has ever come up with a God like the true and living God. It's a corruption at best. And it is the meaning of who the true and living God really is. There is no other God like the true and living God. Verse 8, there is no, none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. No God can do what you can do. And we could look to so many passages. Isaiah is filled with the idea of how idols cannot speak. They cannot hear. They cannot listen. They cannot move. They cannot do anything. They're useless. Only God created the heavens and the earth. Only God can redeem. There is no other God that can do what the true and living God can do. 
Number seven, the nations will eventually come to worship God. And it should be verse nine that is highlighted. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. One day, one day. Of course, we get the New Testament, and we know in the book of Philippians, that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a day coming when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, and every, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. There will be no atheist, there will be no agnostic, and there will be no rebellion. Every knee will bow. But not in a salvific way. Then it will have been too late. But every knee will bow. And that's the psalmist's conviction of how powerful this God is and how he has might and rule and power over his enemies. That every knee will bow before him. Every nation will worship the true and living God. Number eight, the psalmist prays for spiritual renewal in his own life. Teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me your way. How to walk, how to live, how you act, how you rule. Help me to understand what it is that you are doing. Teach me your way, verse 11, that I may walk in your truth. The psalmist wants to understand the word of God in order to live out the word of God. We have that great verse in Deuteronomy that says, the secret things belong unto God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we might do them. There are mysteries that God has not revealed to us. There are things that we cannot know and cannot understand, and there's no need for us to know and understand them. God works on a need-to-know basis. There are things that we don't need to know. But what we need to know is his word. His word. And the reason we should know his word is not in order to win Bible trivia. And it isn't even in order to get brownie points or to feel comfort or to feel good about ourselves. But the reason that we should ask God to teach us his way is that we might walk in the truth, that that we would live out God's word, that we would do what God has commanded us to do. And I have encouraged you to read your Bible through year after year, year after year, year after year, year after year. And, you know, I I think we can get to the place where we feel pretty comfortable that we have a grasp of this book. I tell you without any false humility whatsoever. I'm only coming to understand how much of the Bible I don't really know.
You know, I, I would encourage you to just take some time and just reflect on the scriptures and work your way through the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings. And say the books of the Bible to yourself and then ask yourself, what's in that book? What's in that book? I've read it 20 times, read it 30 times. What's in that book? What does it say? Summarize each chapter. How many chapters of the Bible can you summarize? The minor prophets. Do you know what's in them? You know, we can fool ourselves. And one of the reasons we can fool ourselves is because we're surrounded by people that don't know the Bible at all. It isn't hard in our day and age to be a Bible expert. That's unfortunate. You know, the Puritans were so knowledgeable because the people were so knowledgeable. They had to be. They, they were so entrenched in the word of God. But our society is just so biblically ignorant that if you know anything at all, you know more than just about anybody else. And if you've taught Sunday school for a few years, you're a genius compared to most people, unfortunately. But we can lose sight of how incredibly rich and full the scriptures are and how we have not delved, how we haven't mined them, how we haven't just taken those rich veins of gold and silver that are hidden beneath the pages of the scripture and, and drawn them out. There is so much more depth in the scriptures than what we'll ever, ever get to know. One of the blessings that I have is going back and being involved in books of the Bible that I've already preached through, I've already taught through, and there's always more. There's always more. There's always more I haven't seen. There's always more I haven't, haven't talked about. There's always more that I hadn't understood before. And you just peel back another layer. You just get closer to the core. But there's so much more to peel back. There's so much more to know. It's hard for us to know how to live. It's hard for us to know how to respond to God. It's hard for us to know in times of adversity and difficulty, what is the right path? What is the right way? How should we be behaving ourselves? So the psalmist cries out, teach me. Teach me your way. Help me to understand. And with that, understand that the reading of scripture by itself is not enough. We have to be praying as Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, help me to see. Help me to understand the spiritual truth. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. It's the grace of God that we understand. It's the grace of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that we came to faith. And it's by that same Holy Spirit that we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to be praying constantly. Help me to understand more. Help me to get it. Help me to live it. Number nine. 
The psalmist thanks the Lord for the Lord's love towards him. Psalm 86, verse 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. For great is your steadfast love towards me. As I said, I picked this psalm because it's an Old Testament equivalent in many ways to Christ's intercessory prayer that I went over in my Sunday school class. And in my Sunday school class, I said this morning that Jesus prayed, and he prayed that his disciples would know Christ, that God's love for them, and that he loved us in the way in which God the Father loved God the Son. And that's just mind-boggling. And we talked about how that's manifested in reality in God sending his son for us, that he really did love us, and that that was the father's love for us in sending his son. And there's this constant plea in the scriptures of prayer, that we might know what is the depth and the height and the breadth, the width of the love of God, this immense love for God. We, we just don't know how much God loves us. And unfortunately, that sounds so trite because we hear it so often about God's love and it has become this gooky, meaningless phrase. But God couldn't love you any more than he loves you. And how desperately we need to know that in every situation and circumstance of life, especially in times of adversity, especially in times of hardship, especially when enemies are out to get us, especially when we are depressed. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor principality, nor power, nor might, nor dominion, it goes on and on, or any other name is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You know that great section in Romans chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. 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 Number 10, God is so different from those around us. The psalmist describes his oppressors. His oppressors are arrogant and reliant. Oh God, insolent men have been risen up against me. There are violent, being devoid of any mercy or compassion. Ruthless men. Ruthless men. They do not take God into account. Verse 14. They do not set you before them. The people around us are not at all like God is. For they are insolent, they, they, they are arrogant, they, they are self-reliant. They say that they have no need of God. They are violent, being devoid of any mercy or compassion. You know, we are hearing the news all the time of people getting beat up and others are just watching and standing by. And how people do the most cruel things to each other. And it's easy to 
say, well, you know, that's the world and that's the things we live in, but, you know, even Christians, even our brothers and sisters say terrible things to us. We say terrible things to them. Are indifferent to pain and suffering? Rolls off their back when they hear of tragedy and hardship? Well, maybe offer a prayer at the time. But they're not laying awake at night thinking about what everybody else is going through and all the troubles they have. There's no one like God. And it's important to remember that. Not to put our brothers and sisters down, but to elevate our God. We can't look at God through a human lens because we are sinful, and he is not. So his compassion is perfect. His, his mercy is perfect. His steadfast love is perfect. It's unending. It's unfailing. It has none of the limitations or the taints or the corruptions that ours does. The greatest love you've ever known in your life can't compare to the true love of God. The most compassionate and gracious person can't compare to a God who would send his own son to die for you. There is no equivalency here. And so the psalmist looks at this, this world in light of who God is. B, so God is so unlike David's oppressors, but you, O oh Lord. See, they're insolent. They're ruthless. But you, O oh Lord, are merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You're so different. You're so different. You're different than the way in which anybody has ever interacted with me, with you. We have this incredible admonition in Ephesians that says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That we're to love our wives with, our wives with a Christ-like love. I hope, women, ladies, you have a loving husband but I can tell you that no matter how loving your husband is, he doesn't love you the way God loves you. We fail time and time again. God never fails. God never fails. He has a steadfast, abounding love. So David offers a final plea for God's help. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your servant. Verse 17, show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because, Lord, you have helped me and comforted me. The psalmist wants God to be glorified in his life. 
and the way in which he depicts God's glory is that he will have been comforted and helped. Comforted and helped. What I want us to see as we work through chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, as we look at Psalm 32, as we look at Psalm 51, how God comforted and helped David. God's response to David, I think, is just incredible. And if we'd never read the story before, we'd be amazed at how it turns out. Think about that. For God is steadfast, abounding in love and mercy. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We ask you would help us tonight. Help us as we pray. Lord, show us the beauty of prayer. Show us how wonderful it is that we can pray to you because you answer. Not yes, no, maybe your way. You answer. You, you grant the requests when they're in accordance with your will. When we desire what you desire, when we want to walk in your way. Oh Lord, help us to understand the scriptures that we might walk in your way. That, that the advice that we give to one another, the, the conduct that we enter into, the relationships that we have, the spirit in which we engage the world. Lord, help us to understand your way. To truly reflect the very person of God. To meet that goal that you have set for us to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be more Christ-like. Give us a longing for that, Lord. And how marvelous it will be to be in each other's presence the more Christ-like we become. And may you be glorified as we give you the credit, as we give you the glory for the transformation that you are bringing about in our lives the faithfulness that you are establishing within us that comes not from us, but is imparted to us by your spirit. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.